this kind of stuff is going to lead to violence if somebody doesn't step in and fix it because you now have a huge percentage of this country that believes there is no justice to be had. And that, if you look at any society in history, is a powder keg waiting to blow. Whether it's real or imagined, pick your society, pick your thing. If a large enough percentage of the population believes justice through traditional means is outside of their reach, they will seek out non-traditional means. I promise you that. I know it, not because I'm smart, because I read history books and I see what happens and it's human nature. Right now, the system thinks it's winning because they've sealed off justice from being done for anyone on the right. They're not winning. They're guaranteeing a response. And I want it to change before that happens. I want it to stop. I want real reforms. Jesse Kelly Show, final hour of the Jesse Kelly Show. And remember, tomorrow's an Ask Dr. Jesse Friday. Get your questions emailed in now to jesse at jessekellyshow.com. We're continuing with a couple things here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue with this Hunter Biden, remember the deception, remember what they did thing here in just a second. But as we've been doing all night long. If you missed any of this, you have to go download the podcast on iHeart, Google, Spotify, and iTunes. In every segment, well, after the first couple, in every segment, as a Kelly, we're going down the list of top 10 Irish foods because it is obviously St. Patrick's Day. We just did number five. So without further ado, drum roll, please. Number four. Egg rolls. Have you ever looked at Ireland? That look familiar to you at all? Kind of shaped like an egg roll, isn't it? Why, why do you think that is? I realize everyone's going to say, oh, no, that's Chinese food. Actually, false began in Ireland, stolen by the Chinese. Freaking communists. All right, moving on. Moving on. We went over the Hunter Biden stuff. And of course, you know, they've been lying. They've always been lying. Do you still think that the stories from the fall about your son Hunter were Russian disinformation and scare campaign, like you said? Yes, yes, yes. God love you, man. You, you're a one-horse pony. I tell you. Thank you. Thank you. I promise you my Justice Department will be totally on its own making its judgments about how they should proceed. Thank you. At least he didn't call him a wise guy. That was Peter Ducey from today after the New York Times comes out way too late and confirms everything that was on it. But don't forget, remember, we were talking earlier in the show about how social media, if you're not on there, don't get on there. I'm not encouraging anyone to get on social media, all right? But there is this way of thinking where people will say things like, social media doesn't matter. That's not true. You cannot want it to matter. Social media matters a lot. Why? Because the people who run the world think it matters. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. 
foreign dictators, terrorist organizations. Israel's freaking intelligence organization has one of the best Twitter accounts on there. The, the people who run the world, governments, CEOs, that they think it matters. Therefore, it matters. And the New York Post, a major, well-established publication, they're the ones who broke the Hunter Biden laptop story. It's not like I broke it here on the Jesse Kelly show in between fart sounds. No, no, this came from the New York Post, well-established, credible what was the response? I mean, we have a guy who wants to be president of the United States of America. We just found out his son, uh, on top of all the <clears throat> extracurricular activities, is that fair? Extracurricular activities, we'll call it that. On top of all of those, he has some really, really shady business dealings with some very, very shady people in very, very shady countries. And instead of the media pouncing on that, how... How much did they protect Joe Biden? Well, on top of this... The origins of right-wing media's latest obsession with Hunter Biden. Yeah, we are going there. The New York Post story that dropped like a bomb last week, seemingly implicating Hunter and Joe Biden, continues to wither under scrutiny, not really dropping like a bomb. Hunter Biden isn't running for president. That argument has been debunked. Mike, what are they pushing? Uh, emails reported by the New York Post that we can't authenticate. Never really explained to a general audience what those unsubstantiated charges were all about. What can't be verified? The laptop. Why do you say that? Because Even the family hasn't. A very well focus on Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and the potential disinformation that is filtrating. He again brought up unverified accusations about Hunter Biden's financial dealings. It's much better for Twitter to let people read the New York Post article. Yeah, it goes on and on and on. But instead, what happened was not only did the New York Post get their account banned on Twitter. They eventually had to bring it back. Anyone who tried to share the story got blocked. You couldn't share the story. So the American media and America's social media were so adamant that you not see the reality of Hunter Biden's laptop. They actually had to get programmers in there to create new code, which prevented you from sharing it on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. How do we overcome that? How do we overcome that level of corruption with the people who run the country? And I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for that. I don't know how we overcome that because it's everywhere. Remember, every part of the system went in on this. Shoot, half the Republicans were in on it. Every Democrat, all the American media, Hollywood, you name it. Everybody got in on the cover-up. Everyone did. How do, we, how, do we accomplish, how do we accomplish defeating something like that? And there's something else that's happened. I, I want to bring this up because I do think it is important. Jesse Smollett. You know the whole Jesse Smollett thing. We've laughed about this endlessly, and we'll continue to do that. The guy who faked a hate crime on himself in Chicago. We all know. Said it was MAGA supporters. Said they poured bleach on him. He, he tied a noose around his neck. It was, he, he went all in, right? Okay, so it ended up being a bunch of garbage. Remember, initially, they tried to drop, drop all the charges and let him go. Then it looked too bad. They got shamed into he had to go to trial. He, of course, got convicted because everyone could see he was convicted. And then he gets sent to jail. Sentenced to jail. 150 days. 
Well, um, the Black Lives Matter co-founder and admitted Marxist Patrice Collars had this to say. Colors here, I'm just logging in because I'm in Chicago and was able to see Jesse today. And he's strong, but what's happening inside is just, it's just unacceptable. We just need folks to keep tagging Free Jesse, um, keep posting. Um, we need folks to call um, the jails and check up on him, but also say that you think he should be freed. Yeah, he is freed. They let him out. They let the guy out who lied, committed a crime. They let him out. Now, what's this have to do with what I'm talking about? What's this have to do with Hunter Biden or, or inflation or anything else? Uh, hear me out here and hear me out. Let me just walk with me for a moment. Have you looked into violent things, violent uprisings that have happened in history? Whether it be here in America or, or overseas, whether it be gigantic civil wars or, or small uprisings. Have you ever looked into them? Uh, you know what? A great example here. Let's stay here in America. The Watts riots. You know anything about the Watts riots? Took place out in L.A. back in the day. The Watts riots were really bad. Really bad. Really violent. You ever interview anyone or see an interview with somebody who was involved and was rioting in the, in the Watts riots? I was. I was. It's shocking what they all say to a man. You can believe or not believe them. That's fine. It doesn't matter whether or not you believe them. What they all say to a man, to a woman, was this, is, is this. They felt like they couldn't get justice anymore. They felt like there was two different justice systems. One for everyone else and one for them. And eventually, that boiled over into violence. I am telling you right now, this stuff where the American media crushes you at every turn and campaigns for them at every turn. The stuff where the FBI, they still have, gosh, wanted posters out there for January 6th people, yet they're not even investigating Black Lives Matter. This stuff that has happened over and over and over again in this country, Jesse Smollett is allowed to commit a felony, snap of his fingers, he's out on bail, while nonviolent January 6th protesters are committing suicide over their lives being lost, not convicted of anything at all, this kind of stuff is going to lead to violence if somebody doesn't step in and fix it because you now have a huge percentage of this country that believes there is no justice to be had. And that, if you look at any society in history, is a powder keg waiting to blow. Whether it's real or imagined, pick your society, pick your thing. If a large enough percentage of the population believes justice through traditional means is outside of their reach, they will seek out non-traditional means. I promise you that. I know it, not because I'm smart, because I read history books and I see what happens and it's human nature. Right now, the system thinks it's winning because they've sealed off justice from being done for anyone on the right. They're not winning. They're guaranteeing a response. And I want it to change before that happens. I want it to stop. I want real reforms. I'm not done on this. I actually have another example of this in just a second. The Jesse Kelly Show. It's still real to me, damn it. Returns next. 
It is the Jesse Kelly Show, continuing our tradition of Irish music all night long on a St. Paddy's Day. Look, I have another example of, of it being dangerous when justice is unavailable. It being very dangerous. I have a little, little ham-fisted example I'm about to give you. But first, obviously, we've been going down the list all night long as a Kelly I've been giving you my list of the top 10 Irish foods, one per segment all night long. We just did number four. It is time, without further ado, drum roll please for number three. The cheeseburger. A lot of people don't know this. What do you call the piece of meat on a cheeseburger? A patty, right? Well, obviously, Robert Paddington of Ireland is the one who came up with the cheeseburger. Everyone thinks this is some American thing. It's as Irish as apple pie. The cheeseburger, the number three Irish food. Go and enjoy one tonight. Now, back to what we were talking about. Because I was, I was talking about Hunter Biden's laptop and how they cover for the left. They always cover for the left. I was talking about Jesse Smollett gets sprung out of jail while the January 6th protesters are stuck in jail forever. Incident after incident after incident after incident, you see the Justice Department in the country from the federal level on down lining up against the right. The FBI, they still have wanted posters out for grandma who sauntered into the Capitol. They admitted they're not even looking into Antifa or Black Lives Matter. That's a weaponized justice system against you. And I, I'm telling you, it's creating a dangerous situation in this country. And here's what I mean. Let's say, uh, let's say I come home. I get, off, I get off work tonight. Get done doing the show. Remember, my TV show's on the first TV, 9 p.m. Eastern every night. It, it, so as soon as this is done, first TV. And I get home. And I walk in tonight. And I see my wife has a black eye. I say, okay, uh, what happened? Did, did the youngest son break your nose again? I haven't told that story in a while, haven't I, Chris? Oh, okay, hold on. I'll tell you that story in a second. Back to my story. Did my youngest son break your nose again? And she says, no, I was uh, in line at the, at the gas station getting myself some pork rinds or whatever, and some guy turned around and just socked me right in the face. Now, what would I do in that situation? Obviously, I want to just go murder somebody, I understand that if I do that, then I'm going to go to prison and my kids aren't going to have a father. Wife's not going to have a husband. Life's going to be a disaster, so on and so forth. So what will I do in that situation? I don't know who he is either. I, I pick up the phone and I call the police department. Hey, uh, Houston police, uh, wife just got socked in the face. Here's where it happened, when it happened. This is the description. And let's say they go, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, well, we don't care. Don't call us again and hang up the phone. Okay, that's, that's once. Obviously maddening, frustrating. Not sure where I'd go from there. But let's say, let's say that becomes a common theme. People keep getting robbed and assaulted in my area. And every single time, the people of that area. Remember, I live around just normal people. They're mostly Republicans, just normal people. Let's say every time they call the cops, they get ignored or laughed at. Nothing ever happens. Let's say this continues for a while. Let's give it a year, maybe two. And then a couple years from now, I come home, get done doing the radio show, TV show, walk in the door. Wife's sitting there with another black eye. I say, what happened? 
She says, I was in the gas station buying some pork rinds. Guy turned around and socked me in the face. Well, Jesse's not calling the cops. Jesse's going to go handle that his own way. Why? Because that's what I always wanted? No, because you have cut me off from the normal avenues of justice that I can seek. And you see, justice is one of those things. In the end, people demand it. And so now I'm going to go create my own. I bring this up because for better or worse, disagree with it or agree with it, it doesn't matter. There is a feeling on the right in this country that the justice system, the media, the education system, politics, every part of our society is against them, lined up against them. And there is a feeling that you can't get justice anymore if you're on the right. You never get an honest bit of justice. And there's a stronger feeling that if you're on the left, they'll cover up for you at all times. And how could people not have that feeling? There's no evidence that Hunter Biden has done anything wrong. There is no evidence of any wrongdoing between uh, uh, by Biden, by Joe Biden, or by Hunter Biden. There's no evidence that Joe Biden actually did anything wrong or did anything to sway things in Hunter Biden's favor. He's denied that his son ever lobbied him for anything. There is nothing, Hunter, there is nothing mm-hmm. wrong that Vice President Biden did. President Trump has falsely accused your son of doing something wrong while serving on a company board in Ukraine. I want to point out there's no evidence of wrongdoing by either one of you. There is no evidence that anybody did anything illegal uh, regarding the Bidens uh, and and Ukraine, and, and Joe Biden was carrying out U.S. policy. President Trump wanted dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden. Trump's claims about wrongdoing here are unsubstantiated. We have looked, lots of out outlets have looked. Hunter Biden did nothing wrong. Vice President Biden uh, did nothing wrong. And every single media outlet has said that there are no, there's no there there to these allegations, lies and smears. Every single media outlet. And they did. On top of that, we have former director of intelligence, James Clapper, going on TV and saying it's crazy. And all this is while we had not only the laptop that did get authenticated, we had an eyewitness, Tony Bobolinsky, going on TV talking about it. I've heard Joe Biden say that he's never discussed business with Hunter. That is false. I have firsthand knowledge about this because I directly dealt with the Biden family, including Joe Biden. Everything I'm saying is corroborated by emails, WhatsApp chats, agreements, documents, and other evidence. On May 13, 2017, I received an email concerning allocation of equity, which says 10% held by H for the big guy. In that email, there's no question that H stands for Hunter, big guy for his father, Joe Biden, and Jim for Jim Biden. In fact, Hunter often referred to his father as the big guy or my chairman. We not only had the laptop, we had an eyewitness. There is a feeling that you can't get justice anymore and that they don't get justice either. And that's a dangerous place to be. All right, on with our top 10 Irish foods list. I'll finally get to some emails. All that's coming next.
Headline, Trump reminds Americans Hunter Biden got $3.5 million from the Moscow mayor's wife. The truth is the Biden family, they're not only entrenched in Ukraine, they're very entrenched in Russia, and you, an American, have every right to ask just how compromised is your president and his family, especially as we deal with serious world affairs. California City seriously considers declaring Chick-fil-A a public nuisance. Isn't it odd how one fast food company that happens to be run by Christians has had to endure an endless assault from the left in this country? Need I remind you, let's finish St. Patrick's Day on a sunny note here. Need I remind you that one of the first things the communists do is they kill the Christians. In the Soviet Union, they would actually take the pastors, priests, and they would crucify them. Sometimes they'd crucify them on the church doors. Sometimes they'd crucify them on the altar. They would actually do worse to the nuns. I'll go ahead and spare you the gory details there. The same thing happened in Spain when the communists were fighting Franco there. Over and over and over and over again, Communism has constantly declared war on Christianity and has murdered as many of them as humanly possible. Maybe it's time to ask yourself why. Headline, Gavin Newsom opposes Republican bid to pause a sky-high gas tax because it would, quote, help petro-dictators and oil companies. I feel so bad. We have so many people. I have so many friends in California. We have so many listeners in California. And those poor people, they just have no escape. It's just a relentless assault on them. All right. If you missed any part of the show, the whole thing's available on iHeart, Google, Spotify, and iTunes. On iTunes, leave a five-star rating in a review talking about how handsome I am. Tomorrow's an Ask Dr. Jesse Friday. Get your questions emailed in. Get them emailed in now. I promise they don't get lost. Ask me anything. Email jesse at jessekellyshow.com. That's jesse at jessekellyshow.com. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to spend the whole show listening, well, to me. What's more fun than that? What, Chris? (laughs) Have a happy St. Patrick's Day. That's all. This episode of Newt's World, my guest is a very good friend and somebody I really admire, Herman Perchner. He is the founding president of the American Foreign Policy Council, a nonprofit public policy organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. Under his leadership, AFPC has hosted Washington events for hundreds of foreign officials. His travels have taken him to most areas of the world, including more than 65 trips to the former Soviet Union since 1989, and more than 30 trips to China since 1994. Calista and I have had the opportunity to travel with him in both countries, and it's amazing how many people he knows and how widely accepted he is. In addition to his duties at AFPC, 
He directed the national security team advising my 2012 presidential campaign. So I have a personal debt to him. And I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Herman Percher. He's here to talk about his book, which is very relevant in this moment, Post-Putin, Succession, Stability, and Russia's Future. Herman, thank you for joining me. Newt, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to be with you. This is kind of an amazing time. You've been looking at the Soviet Union and now Russia for a very long time. You founded the American Foreign Policy Council back in 1982. Given your knowledge of both Russia and Ukraine, let's just start with sort of basics. What do you think Putin's intent is? What is his end goal? His end goal is absorbing all of Ukraine. In 2005, I wrote a monograph, which is still available on Amazon and other places, called Reviving Greater Russia and the Future of Russia's Borders with Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Moldova, and Georgia. So if you wanted to look for it, you could see Russian designs on all those territories that long ago. In 2001, Russia passed the law on the expansion of the Russian Federation, 2001. That was a law that was used to annex Crimea. They were an imperial country, and the imperial aims haven't been disguised for anybody that wanted to look. You think for him, victory has to involve the whole country? Yes, there's some chance they may leave out part of Ukraine that's Eastern Rite Catholic and it had been under the Austro-Hungarian Empire rather than Tsarist Russia for many years. But my guess is he bought the whole country and more. So at the same time, it seems that they're having difficulty with their military trying to actually occupy the whole country. I think people tend to forget how big Ukraine is. It's almost the size of Texas. Do you think it's actually possible for Russia to occupy the whole country? No, I think it's impossible. But you're asking about Putin's aspirations. And aspirations and capability are different. He doesn't have the capability to do it. So as this has evolved in the last few weeks, there's a growing pressure back home in Russia, and the Kremlin's passed a law criminalizing independent war reporting and protest against the war with penalties up to 15 years in jail. And there are some reports that over 14,000 people have been arrested in connection with anti-war actions. What is your sense about the level of discontent? The level of discontent is high and has been high for some years. I wrote a national interest piece in May of 2000 about Putin's precarious future. And in it, I noted that the living standard of average Russian had gone down five in the previous six years, that the growth rate of the Russian economy had been 0.6%, one-fifth of the global average and that more than half of the 18 to 24-year-olds wanted to leave the country. And that's one of the reasons he went into Ukraine as a diversion. It's also one of the reasons he's having a problem in Ukraine. Those 18 to 24-year-olds are so anxious to die for Russian imperialism. In the Ukraine campaign, he's been attacking health facilities. It's clear that when they figured out they couldn't defeat the Ukrainian army, they went to basically a terror campaign. 
and have been using aerial weapons against civilians. The maternity hospital that became very famous where the pregnant woman, ultimately she and her baby both died. I think so far some 18 healthcare facilities in Ukraine have been bombed. At what point do these become war crimes? And is it conceivable that Putin could be charged with war crimes? I think they are war crimes already. I think he could be charged, but I don't think you'll see him sitting in the docket. It's unlikely that Putin will leave Russia for any place with the possible exception of China or North Korea. I didn't know this. Apparently, the International Criminal Court in The Hague has announced it's open to war crimes investigation. Is that just pro forma? We'll find out. I think the Europeans may be serious about it. So basically, I mean, one of the side effects could be that he couldn't travel to a whole range of places because it then would be subject to arrest and deportation, which happened to the Chilean dictator Pinochet, who ended up, I think, being deported from Spain. But in terms of Russia internally, do you think that the atrocities bother people, or do you think that he's still the de facto leader? I think the atrocities in Ukraine do bother the population who's only gradually finding out what's really going on. When you have total control of the media, it's easy to give people a distorted point of view of what's going on. I remember shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, I posted a noted reform economist from Russia, Sergei Kosovchenko. He was my house guest for a couple of weeks. He authored the first private property law in the Russian Federation. And after being here two weeks, he turned to me one night, very sad. He said, I had access to things others didn't. I knew I was being lied to, but I didn't know how much I was being lied to. As the Russian people find out how much they're being lied to, there will be horror. Russian culture is not KGB culture. KGB culture is what's running Russia today. Do you think that watching the casualties in military, the casualties including senior generals, to what extent do you think his hold on the military is weakening? I think it is weakening, and it's impossible to know from the outside how much it's weakened. Before he went in, there's a general by the name of Ivershoff, anti-West, anti-NATO, you know, he has a status maybe like Petraeus in Russia, maybe even more. He heads the Reserve Officers Association, which is important in Russia. And he called for Putin's resignation and called any invasion of Ukraine folly. Now, would he have done that if he didn't have a substantial following with an active duty military? I think not. I was very struck with that because it made me realize that in some ways... Russia is an authoritarian rather than a totalitarian state. I mean, if you tried that against Xi Jinping, everybody who signed the letter would be gone. I think so. But it also has to do with the role of the military. Putin's base is support of intelligence services, and he's trying to put, of course, his people on the top of the military. But Shaigu, the defense minister, is not a professional military man, and not everybody that Putin's put on top is popular with the military rank and file. And after this disaster that's unfolded, you have to wonder how secure the people at the top of the military are if they don't turn against this invasion at some point. I noticed that you joined with 25 other leading foreign security experts in signing a bipartisan letter calling for a limited no-fly zone over Ukraine. What is a limited no-fly zone? We issued that at the time where Russia was agreeing to humanitarian corridors to permit the infirm, the children, the older people to leave. 
And every time they did that, the Russians would bomb or break with artillery the evacuation routes. And my thought in signing that was if Russia agrees to a corridor and continues not to permit it to happen, there should be free space for a period of time that the non-combatants could get out. You know, the counter-argument is that a no-fly zone to be enforced would eventually lead to shooting down Russian aircraft, and that would just lead to a much broader war. I mean, do you think that would happen, or do you think they would be intimidated? Well, I note the volume calling for a no-fly zone got louder. Putin started letting people evacuate. 2,000 got out of Mariupol in recent days. So I think Putin has his hands full with Ukraine. He has his hands so full that he's had asked for help from China and from Syria. Does he want to engage NATO and the U.S. too? No. So you think we actually could be more risk-taking than we are right now? Yes. I found your book, Post-Putin, Succession, Stability, and Russia's Future. Your knowledge of Russian history and your knowledge of thinking intellectually and analytically about this was fascinating. First of all, what led you to write the book? I began to understand that Putin was not on firm ground inside of Russia. There's an old Lenin saying that from the spark, a flame can be lit. And in Russian, it's easy, Kree, Vazgoritsa, Flamya. And what he meant by that is when there's a revolutionary condition, some little event can cause it to erupt and major things can happen. Think of the vendor that set himself on fire in Tunisia that began the Arab Spring. So when I came to the conclusion that Russia internally was unstable from its own independence movements, primarily in the Muslim areas of Russia, but not entirely from the discontent of the citizens who have hospitals that don't have hot water because Putin has big datches and his crowd has billions abroad, I decided maybe we should take a look at what comes after Putin, because I believe if he goes, the window to influence events may be small, and there should be contingency plans by the United States, but also other countries. I note the books in the Ukrainian language and also the Russian language now. You put together a series of steps, but you also go back and look at who's lost power in the past. And I think you had somebody on your team who actually analyzed dictatorship replacements over a very long time in terms of Russian traditions. And you found some fascinating patterns, some of which I was really surprised by. Yes. Well, we did a study of 120 post-World War II dictatorships of countries of 10 million or more. 42% of those people were kicked out by coups and 20% assassinated. And those percentages held true even for people that have held power for as long as Putin. He's aware of his vulnerabilities, especially when he sees the rest of the country. And I think it's one of the reasons that they launched the offensive in Ukraine. He thought a small, successful war may solidify his internal position. My sense was that he shared Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley's view, that they'd be in Kiev in three days and probably assumed that the Ukrainians would just collapse. 
I think that's right. And it's interesting that Millie had that point of view as well as our intel community. Nobody that had traveled in Ukraine that got outside of the capital and talked to the official interlocutors would make such a statement. You know, I was there last in May. I was on the front lines. I was in Mariupol. I traveled around the country and it was clear that the Ukrainians were going to fight and they had their version of never again. Given their history under Russian rule, they simply were willing to risk their lives so their families and their children and grandchildren wouldn't live under the Russian yoke. So I think it was a massive intelligence failure by the U.S. to predict that things would collapse so quickly. You know, I mean, to take this to an aside for a second, you had a very similar intelligence failure about the Taliban in Afghanistan. I mean, to what extent should we be worried that we have 17 intelligence agencies spend tens of billions of dollars, and they're wrong? I think we should be very worried, and part of it is some of our intelligence people tend to stay in the embassies and in the capital cities and don't get out. I think there's a risk aversion, and we're paying the price for it. One of the most fascinating things you do, which really got me thinking differently, is you talk about the elements that have the capacity for force versus the elements that don't have the capacity for force. Could you go into that for a minute or two? Because you really explain it in a way that I was recently teaching a course for major generals, and I was walking them through your book and this whole notion of when you look at a place like Russia, that you got to figure out who you need to pay attention to. It's always those with the guns that decide in a society like Russia. There was a movie out called The Death of Stalin, and in it it deals with how the leadership struggle unfolded in the Soviet Union after Stalin died. And Beria, the intelligence chief that killed so many millions, was getting ready to make the power play. And when the Politburo met, he had all his troops protecting the Politburo, and they were in all the access points. And then you see the Soviet military, its leadership, and they had more guns. So they just told the intelligence people, guys, we don't want to kill you, so just leave. And they left, and Beria was taken to jail and killed. And I think today Putin has tried to protect himself by having a National Guard that reports directly to him, some hundreds of thousands of people. And it's run by Zolotov, who is his former bodyguard and chief of presidential security. And that's probably pretty good if oligarchs by themselves want to make a coup. But if the military gets involved, it's no contest. And if the oligarchs find ways to divide his National Guard, to divide other institutions within Russia that have force, it won't matter. Putin will be gone, and I think at some point he will be gone question is how and when. I don't think he's in power two years from now, maybe not two months from now. I've seen the death of Stalin at least four times now. And I think that the scene where Zhukov shows up is one of the greatest entrance scenes I've ever seen in terms of sense of power, which apparently the original Zhukov had. Oh, yeah. He was a personality by all accounts. That's right. So you sort of wonder, I mean, when you have Putin publicly humiliating his intelligence chief, which he did the other day. And you have this, I think the top two guys in the intelligence community are now under house arrest. I mean, there are tensions there that are real, and they get to be dangerous when they're with the guys with guns. Yep. 
Couldn't agree more. The other thing you covered, which I was really surprised by, I didn't realize that after Lenin died, that there's actually about a 10-year power struggle before Stalin finally consolidates. I'd always thought it was much faster than that. In today's Russia, it's a similar thing. If Putin goes, there's likely to be a power struggle that will last for some years until somebody consolidates power. And during that time, it's predictable that Russia will withdraw from aggressive activity in the world and give it the minimum of fig leaf to the West to try to relieve sanctions. And depending on how long it takes to consolidate power, it might even invite aggression by China and the Russian Far East. The Russian Far East and Eastern Siberia until 1858 and 1860 were China, and at some point China will want to get that back. If chaos comes to Russia, they may make a move, not by military means, but by moving millions of Chinese in. It's one of the things I think we underestimate in the West that there's a huge Russian vulnerability to just the sheer population weight of China. You have a Russia which is declining in population with males having remarkably short lives. Somebody said it's the equivalent of Guatemala and lower than any other you know, supposedly modern country, although raises questions about how modern Russia is now. And you have this enormous population in China so that the imbalance along the Siberian border is just astonishing. I've done the full length of the Russia-China border three times on the ground, so I know the territory pretty well. If you go east of the Euros, this is a vast area. You could sit the whole United States in it. Much of it, of course, is near the Arctic and frozen and not well populated, but there may be only 20, 22 million people in that entire area. And in the Russian Far East, maybe 6 million. And you have well over 100 million Chinese right on the other side of the border. It has an area of black earth that could support 50 million people in farming. The Chinese used to own that. They want it back at some point. And people on both sides of the border understand that. I always thought part of the reason that they kept as many nuclear weapons as they did was because they know they cannot deal with China conventionally. Well, that's right. The danger is conquest by population. For instance, in the Chinese province of Xinjiang, this is where the Uyghurs are, it's in the western part of China, there were only 4% Han Chinese at the end of World War II. Now the Han Chinese are about half, and they have all the important positions. What happens in Siberia if suddenly in this area of, of say, the Far East, 6 million Russians use suddenly have 20 million Chinese. Is it China or Russia without a shot being fired? And if the Chinese conventional forces move in to make sure their citizens are not discriminated against, will Russia start a nuclear war? Can't win. So if you have the Chinese pressure from the east, the Muslim pressure from the south, and the pressure that life is better everywhere when you cross the border to the west, so that Sitting in Moscow, you're really juggling some very, very tricky situations. Very tricky. And the independence movements from the Muslims is not just in the Caucasus. Kazan, Askertia, Tartarstan, you have an independence movement as well. 
these are the last remnants of the Mongols. It's a Muslim area of Mongol heritage. So you make the point that there's a probable limit on where the range of successors will probably come from. Could you describe what, sort of in general terms, what you think, if there is a Putin successor in the near future, that person will be like? I think the person has to come from the force ministries because change can't be made without guns. Those without guns are going to want their people in place. I think it can't be somebody that is against corruption because the whole elite have gotten rich on corruption. And if somebody came in that had announced in the beginning they're going to do put people in jail for corruption, I think that candidate's going to have a rough time coming to power. I think it certainly will be a man because Russia's a very chauvinist country. I think it's likely to be somebody that's on the scene already as a governor, as a minister, maybe the mayor of Moscow, Sobyanin. But it could be somebody like Putin that just comes out of the weeds from one of the intel agencies. Well, at some point in the not-too-distant future, this particular war will be over. How hard do you think it'll be for Russia to get reintegrated back in the world after this, and how much do you think the damage is permanent? I think it depends on what comes after Putin. You know, Nikita Khrushchev was ousted two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in talking to a member now dead of the Politburo that ousted Khrushchev, I was told that one of the reasons for his ouster was he was thought to be too reckless that he put the country needlessly at risk. You know, which of course begged the question, is this fiasco of Putin in Ukraine, and increasingly it looks like that, and misjudging the response from the West that's put at risk the lifestyles of the powerful in Russia. Is that sufficient for a critical mass of the elite to decide his recklessness has put us at risk? We don't like not being able to travel between our mansions in Europe. We don't like the idea that we can't do business. We don't like the idea that we can't access our funds. We don't like the idea that he's made NATO stronger, not weaker. We don't like the idea that he's turned Ukrainians against Russians for generations. So if you start having that type of feeling, it may be the grounds for ousting Putin. But it could take time to organize. I don't know that it takes two years the way it did with Khrushchev, but people are going to be cautious at the beginning who they talk to when you talk about the mechanics of pushing somebody out of power. When this is over, is it your expectation that there will still be a Ukraine? Yes. I think Ukraine will survive. And if it survives, do we have some obligation to reach out around the world and create the equivalent of a Marshall Plan to help rebuild it? Absolutely, and I think there's sentiment for that in Europe as well as in the United States. The Ukrainian people have suffered massively. Take this little town of Mariupol. They, in less than a month, have lost more people, primarily civilians, than Americans lost servicemen in 20 years fighting in Afghanistan. This is a country one-eighth the size of the United States. And that number of 2,000, which are the ones that were counted dead, is going to go up. The deputy mayor of Mariupol thinks it will go into five figures, but they don't know because there's so many collapsed buildings. They don't know who's buried under them and who won't show up, who got out and who didn't. We have some obligation to help them return to normal life, I think. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me. As you know, both Clist and I are very big fans of yours and very big fans of the work that you do. 
Uh, I really recommend very highly to everybody your book, Post-Putin, Succession, Stability, and Russia's Future. And I really appreciate, Herman, you're joining me today. Thanks, you. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you to my guest, Herman Perchner. You can get a link to buy his book, Post-Putin, Succession, Stability, and Russia's Future, on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. <laughs>